So, minor prophets. That's where we're starting today, and uh, I'm excited about it. My name's Chip. I'm one of the pastors here at The Orchard, and I'm looking forward to this series, but I know that when we start a series, and it's called Minor Prophets, that there's probably only two reactions that you're having right now. Maybe, number one, you're like a big Bible nerd, and you are jacked up. You are ready to go. You are hyped out of your mind. You've got a shovel ready to dig in. Minor Prophets, let's go. But maybe you're not. Maybe you're like everybody else, and you're wondering why the heck we're about to take five weeks to go through these little bitty books that are in the back of our Old Testament. Well, I really do think that that's probably the predominant opinion of people who hear that we're doing a series called Minor Prophets, and I think the reason why has to do with the name Minor Prophets. See, the name Minor Prophets is the term we use to talk about the last 12 books inside of our English New Testament. There are these minor prophets in the far back, and just the name Minor Prophets, I think, already gives two strikes against these books of our Bible, these parts of our Scripture. First off, the name is Minor. Like, are they unimportant? Is this the Minor League? Should I go to the Major Prophets? But Minor doesn't have anything to do with the importance of the prophets. Minor is that the, they are short prophets. And when I say short prophets, I don't mean like me. They weren't 5'2". I mean, the length of their prophecies were not that long. They were shorter books. But besides just the minor part, because I think we can get over that a little bit, it's the fact that they're minor prophets. And I think that word prophets, sitting in church in America in 2022, probably freaks us out a little bit. We're not sure what that word means. What does it mean when somebody is a prophet? If you've watched enough movies, if you've seen enough televangelists on TV, I think you get this idea that these prophets are these uh, supernatural beings who speak into the future about things that are to come or whatever. And there is some of that about the predicting of the future that we see in these prophecies, but not predicting these weird out-of-the-way things that would happen. Those are few and far between. What the prophets mainly predicted was the consequences of sin. Kind of like, hey, dummy, if you're going to make dumb decisions, you're going to get these results. That was kind of the predictions that they spent most of their time doing. But when you think about prophet, you shouldn't think prediction at all. When you think about prophet inside of the Bible, you need to think about proclamation. These were guys who spoke on behalf of the Lord. The Lord would speak to the prophet, and then the prophet would speak to the people. Matter of fact, if you grew up in church, went with your grandma, you probably heard this saying, thus saith the Lord. Man, that was a prophet. That was a prophet uh, speaking on behalf of God to the people. And so when we read minor prophet, that in and of itself can kind of freak us out a little bit. And even on top of all that, these minor prophets are in the Old Testament. And we've got these books of our Bible that make up two-thirds of our Scripture that we call old. But they're not old as in they're unimportant. They're not old as in they don't matter anymore. It's old as in this was the covenant that came first. The New Testament is the one that came later. And so I think with all those misnomers out of the way, maybe we can start to lean into these minor prophets and not shy away from them. The reason that we're going to dig into these little obscure books is because as much as any other collection of writings inside of our scriptures, they teach us about the character of God and about the relationship that he has with his people. 
Throughout all of the minor prophets, you see this. We see the heart of God, and we see what and who he is in his relationship with his people. And these books, all 12 of them, are going to mainly focus on his relationship with the nation of Israel. And at this point, when these minor prophets are written, this nation of Israel had been divided up into two kingdoms. A northern kingdom that was called Israel or Ephraim or Syria, those were all names, or then the southern kingdom that was called Judah. And so we see God's primary relationship with them, but I think as we understand that relationship, we can also see much about his heart for us today. So where we're going to start this series, Minor Prophets, is with the very first minor prophet in your Bible, and that is Hosea. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn there, and I'll catch up with you in a minute. But we're going to be today talking about and looking at the book of Hosea. So before we jump in, let me give you a little bit of background. Hosea was one of these prophets that was written to the northern kingdom. Remember, it was split into two. It was written to the northern kingdom known as Israel, and it was written before they were sent away into captivity and exile. Uh, It is one of the oldest of the minor prophets. It was written before most of them, and it's one of the longest minor prophets. Hosea's 14 chapters. Most don't even sniff that. Uh, And what's really neat about Hosea is that as you read it, it's really broken into two different parts. Chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea read like a real-life object lesson, trying to teach us a real-life parable uh, in the book. And then the rest of the book, from chapter 4 to 14, is kind of an anthology of Hosea's prophecies, kind of like a collected edition of his proclamations on behalf of the Lord. And to really understand both of those, the object lesson and the proclamations, you have to realize that all of the book of Hosea is grounded in one truth, and that is God's covenant with the nation of Israel. Hosea's entire message is based off of that covenant. And we don't have time to really fully unpack what that covenant is, but we can give a simple explanation is this, is that back long ago, we read in Genesis, that God chose the man Abram, who would become Abraham, to birth from him a nation that would be God's chosen people here on earth. That was the nation that would become Israel. And we say, why did God choose them? Well, the Bible Bible says he chose them because there was nothing special about them. He chose them because they in themselves were insignificant and he wanted to make himself known through them. So God chooses Abraham, he chooses the nation of Israel to be his people and God enters into an exclusive relationship with them. But if you continue reading about the history of Israel, you know that that relationship doesn't stay exclusive because Israel turns its back on God, turns to false gods, turns to idols, turns their heart away. And that's exactly what we've come to in Hosea. The northern kingdom has left the covenant relationship they have with God and have turned to false idols. And so what God is going to do through Hosea and this little book is he's going to bring his relationship with Israel to life inside of the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. So if you got your Bible, let's read about that a little bit. Hosea chapter 1. We're just going to read two verses and talk about it. Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This is what we read. It says, When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity. 
and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So he went and married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So that's the story. That's the beginning. You have Hosea, who is a uh, good, faithful, obedient Jewish person. Maybe he was a prophet at this point. Maybe he wasn't. But here's Hosea minding his business, and the Lord comes to him and speaks to him, which would be freaky in and of itself, right? But the Lord comes, and he speaks to Hosea, and he tells Hosea to do something that Hosea probably never expected. He says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a woman of promiscuity. Depending on what translation you have, that word may read differently. Uh, it could be translated, uh, marry a woman of idolatry. could be marry a woman of prostitution. But the idea here is that he's going to marry a woman who is not faithful to him. And that woman's name is Gomer. We don't know a lot about Gomer outside of Hosea other than her name. And I know that when you hear Gomer in 2022, it sounds funny. But I can assure you we have no reason to think she was anywhere related to Gomer Pyle and that the name Gomer was probably a very normal name for a Jewish woman back in Hosea's day. But God tells Hosea, I want you to go and marry Gomer and she's going to be unfaithful to you. Now, there's been some debate about whether Hosea went and married Gomer and she was already a prostitute and he married her and brought her out of that, uh, or if that this idea of her promiscuity came after the marriage. We're not sure. But what we do know is that God told Hosea from the very beginning, you're going to marry her, she's going to be unfaithful to you, and it's because the people of Israel have been unfaithful to me. And what a tough pill that had to be to swallow. For Hosea to go and to marry someone he knew that may love him but would never stay faithful to him. And really, their relationship is not expounded on in chapter 1 any more than these two verses. All we know is the basic facts, that Hosea married someone who acted immorally at least after they got married, that this was an analogy of Israel and God, and but, but how she was immoral, how she was unfaithful, we don't really know. The point was is that Hosea's experience gave him a deeper understanding of God's love for the nation Israel and a more effective way for him to communicate that to his fellow Israelites than any just words he could have spoken on his own without this experience. And I think it's important to note that Hosea knew what he was getting into. Doesn't mean he had to like it, but he was obedient to it. So if you were to keep reading in chapter 1, uh, you would see that Gomer and Hosea had kids. And uh, these kids were given special names. They were given the name Jezreel, Lo-Ruamah, and Lo-Ami. And the reason they were gave these names is because these names each uh, were a reference to God's relationship with Israel and the judgment and punishment that was coming upon them. And by the way, how could a family have worse names than Gomer? And yet here we are. But these names, as these kids were born, they made their family, they made their home, they had this significance and then one day, Gomer left. We don't know why she left. We don't know what led to her leaving. 
Matter of fact, one of my wife's favorite books, I shouldn't say one, her favorite book of all time is a book that kind of thinks through this and plays it out in a different historical context called Redeeming Love. It's a story of Hosea and Gomer told in a different time in the lens of a fiction encounter, but really biblically, we don't know why Gomer left. We don't know what made her go away. Maybe it started with an affair. Maybe she caught another man's eye in town and they began texting and having inappropriate communication and then that led to one thing to another. Uh, We don't know, but what we know is that where she ended up probably wasn't intended, uh, wasn't where she intended to be in the first place because at the end of it all, whatever led her away from Hosea in their marriage, by the end of it, she was again a slave, probably a slave in a brothel, a prostitute. And, and really to me, when I hear that and hear that story, it reminds me of the prodigal son, the, the son who we read about in the parable from Jesus who leaves the home of his father and goes to enjoy the wealth of the world and the desires of the world, and yet at the end of his journey finds himself stopped in a pig pen covered in mud desiring to eat the slop of the pigs that he was serving. I think Gomer probably was in the same boat. She went away, went further than she ever intended, and wound up becoming a slave again. But see, that's not the end of their story. You can pick up their story again in chapter 3. So if you got your Bible, flip over a page or so and look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The Lord again comes to Hosea, and this is what he says. Then the Lord said to me, go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I brought, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. I can't help but think of how Hosea must have heard this. Here he was, married to this woman. He knew one day would be unfaithful. She was faithful enough for them to have three kids to start a family. And then one day what he feared would come came and she left and she loved another man. She was loved by another man. She wound up back in, if she was in the first place, prostitution. She had given herself away. I don't know the emotions he went through. I don't know what he felt, but I can't imagine what he felt when God came to him and said, Hosea, you're going to go and love her again. You see, at this point, the covenant of marriage between Hosea and Gomer had been broken. Hosea had no reason to stay married to Gomer. He could have written her off. He could have divorced her, but he he didn't. And God comes to him and he says, Hosea, even though you have every reason to walk away from her, to never take her back, Hosea, go love her again. And this is where the connection to the prodigal son goes in a different direction. Because in the prodigal son, it says the son comes to his senses and he goes home to his father. But here, Hosea is the one who leaves home. Hosea leaves home and he goes to search for her. I don't know how long that took him. Maybe he knew exactly where she was. Maybe he had to search for her in every bar and strip club and brothel that he could find. I don't know. But he goes out searching. And when he does, he buys her back. Now, that's why I've told you that she became a slave again because Hosea didn't just bring her home. He had to buy her back. He says specifically that I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. So we know that he bought her for a high price. 
Matter of fact, it was a very high price for Hosea. The reason that we assume he had to use silver and barley is because he didn't have enough silver. He had to scrape together everything he had to go buy this unfaithful wife back and to bring her home. So you can continue reading if you want. He goes and he brings her home. And he brings her home with a pledge of faithfulness to her after a period of purification. And that's what we know. The story ends there in chapter 3. And chapter 4 begins these different anthologies of Hosea's proclamations. But this story of Hosea and Gomer is a story that has captured imaginations for years. That book, Redeeming Love, may be the most well-known kind of publication that reimagines the story. But it's so well-known that that movie just released last week. The movie Redeeming Love about Hosea and Gomer just released in theaters. You could go watch it tonight if you wanted to drive to a theater. And that story has captured our imagination, but it was meant to because that story was to be a picture of the relationship between God and his people Israel. It's a story of love. It's a story of sin. It's a story of redemption. So let's kind of talk through that. It's a story of love. Well, what is love. I know that sounds like a dumb question to ask, what is love? I'm not asking what love has to do with it. I'm asking, what is love? And seriously, how would you define that? If I were actually sitting in your living room right now and asked you, hey, how do you define love? How would you answer? And you may never given thought to that, but here's why I ask. Because for us today, love can mean any number of things. You can love your spouse. You can love your kids. You can love your parents. You can love your dog, you can love your house, you can love a TV show, you can love the fried blooming onion from Roadhouse or Outback or whatever. You can love all of these things. So if we can love all of these things, what the heck does love even mean? Because I hope you do not see your spouse the same way you see the fried onion. They're different. So what does love mean? I think that has to come from well, how does the world today see love? When, when we talk about love in this world, in this culture, in this time period, what does that mean? Um, is it a feeling that we have? Hey, this brings me a good feeling, a feeling of desire, a feeling of fulfillment, satisfaction, and I can get that from my spouse or a TV show or an onion. Is that the feeling that we mean? Uh, maybe you'd say, no, Chip, it's not a feeling. It's deeper than that. It's an emotion that we have. Love it is an emotion. It's a, it's a reflex uh, feeling. It's not something we can control, but it's that uh, emotion that's up and down. And really, I think if it's a feeling or emotion, which you may say that's what love is, is it just that fleeting? Is love something that I can feel today, but not tomorrow? Can I tell you as a pastor, the conversation that I've had to have over and over throughout the years that just breaks my heart is when I sit down with a couple and they say, I just don't love them anymore. That breaks my heart. And I have to say, I think, I think something's wrong with that. See, I don't think that's what love is. I think love is more than a feeling. I think love is more than an emotion. I think the way God sees love is different. It's different than the way the world sees love. I think when God sees love, he sees it as an action. Love is something that we don't feel. It's something that we practice. I think when God sees love, he doesn't see it as a response or a reflex. I think when God sees love, he sees it as a choice. You may say, Chip, that's not what I've always thought. That's not what I've always believed about love. Why would you think that's how God sees it? 
Well, several different reasons. I'd love to talk with you, chat with you online about it, but maybe from Hosea, the biggest reason is because he tells Hosea, Hosea, go love Gomer again. If it's a feeling or an emotion, if it's an involuntary response, if it's being struck by Cupid's arrow, you can't command that. You can't command the heart to respond in that way. But if love is more than a feeling and an emotion, if love is an action, if love is a choice, if love is, as the Bible describes, a covenant that we enter into, then absolutely God can go to Hosea and say, Hosea, go and love her again. So I think that this story does much to teach us about love and its true nature. But it also shows us the ugliness of sin, doesn't it? We could ask the same question, not just what is love, what is sin? If you grew up in church, maybe your definition of sin is something like sin is the bad things that we do. Or maybe you really grew up in church and you're saying, no, no, Chip, it's more than that. It's not just the bad things we do, it's the good things we don't do. Well, yes, that's right too. And if you grew up in Awanas like I did, maybe the answer you hear in your back of your mind from your Awana teacher is, well, sin is falling short of the mark. Sin is coming short of God's holiness and God's perfection. All of those are true. But I think what we see here in Hosea is that sin is more than that. And sin always results in broken relationship. It was Gomer's sin, her unfaithfulness, that led to that broken relationship with Hosea that broken covenant where he could have turned his back and walked away. Sin always results in a broken relationship with others around us. We sin against others, and it always results in a broken relationship with the God who created us and them in the first place. See, here's what I think sin is. I think sin is the outworking of the redirection of our hearts and affection away from their proper place. See, our hearts by nature and creation are made to love and enjoy and direct our affection to the God who created us. And sin has entered the world and broken it and thus redirected those emotions and affections away from our creator. And they've turned them to lesser things. Heck, Hosea says that uh, Israel's loved raisin cakes. What in the world? But it is our affection, our hearts that have been turned away. And what sin is, is the outworking of that. We love pleasure more than God, so we sin. We love ourselves more than God, so we sin. We love money more than God, so we sin. It is the outworking of the affection that has already left. But Hosea is more than that. Maybe the most meaningful part of Hosea and Gomer's story isn't what it teaches us about love and what it teaches us about sin I think the most, the most uh, impactful part of the story is what it teaches us about redemption. Matter of fact, that's why Francine Rivers named the book. That's why the movie is called Redeeming Love. Because Hosea goes, and as he loves Gomer again, he redeems her from her unfaithfulness. And that word redemption literally means to buy back. 
You may talk about redemption. You may sing about redemption. You may know a redemption church, but redemption at its core is a buying back. And so Hosea goes in the climax of the story, in the climax of the movie, in the beauty of their relationship, Hosea goes, he takes his silver, he scrapes together his barley, and he buys his bride back. That's redeeming love. That's what he did for Gomer. And here, listen, that's what Jesus did for us. When we talk about redemption, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. And maybe you're reeling for a minute because you've been hearing this whole story of Hosea and you've heard it for years and maybe you've already went to see the movie and you're putting yourself in Hosea's shoes you're seeing yourself as this obedient soldier who's going to do the hard things for Jesus, even when people are mean, even when people don't love you. You take pride in how firm you can stand and how faithful you can be. But you need to listen to me and you need to draw close for a minute because if you see yourself as Hosea, you've missed the point of Hosea. You're not Hosea, you're Gomer. Jesus is the true and better Hosea. You are the Gomer who, like the nation of Israel, has been unfaithful. You, like Gomer, are the one who has loved another and turned your attention, turned your affection, turned your heart away from your Creator and away from your Savior. And it is Jesus who is Hosea. It is Jesus who is the Redeemer, not us. I mean, just just think about it. It's Jesus who loved us first. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love because He first loved us. You didn't fall in love with Jesus and because you were beautiful, because you were smart, because you were funny, He loved you back. No, He loved you first. Even beyond that, He loved you while you were still in your sin, knowing you were going to be a sinner. Right, that's, that's what makes Hosea so startling is he knows from the get-go Gomer's going to be unfaithful, yet he loves her. And when she's unfaithful, he loves her again. What do you think Jesus has done for you? Jesus knows that you're a sinner. He knows that you're going to be unfaithful, and yet he loves you again. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not Christ died for the righteous, not Christ died for the church, not Christ died for the holy, not Christ died for the pink-haired ladies who can recite the book of Revelation. No, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he goes on, For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you marvel at the love Hosea showed Gomer, how much more should you marvel at how Jesus has loved you? He knew you were a sinner. He knew you would be a sinner. He knew until this life was over and you see him face to face, you will fail, you will fall, you will be unfaithful, and yet he loved you. And not only that, He didn't just love you with a feeling. He didn't just love you with an emotion. Paul says that he proves his love 
and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And in that death, he bought us back. He redeemed us for himself. Just like Gomer, stuck as a slave, prostitute, in a brothel, you and I were captive to our own sin, and Jesus redeemed us. He bought us back. How did he redeem us? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Man, that's why I love the story of Hosea and Gomer because it's the story of me and Jesus. I was the Gomer who was trapped in my sin. I was the Gomer who was unfaithful and walked away and Jesus was the bridegroom who came to buy me back. I love seeing how Jesus, through that love and by his blood, has pursued us and has purchased us. And that's the thing, isn't it? That it's that love, it's that mercy, it's that grace that is what draws us to him. I'm not going to spoil the book or the movie, but it's that love that draws us back to him. One more passage. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says again, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See, Paul says it plainly. It is the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is his kindness that draws us back to him. I think the question has to be asked, well, kindness, I thought we were talking about love. What kindness in particular Well, if you read the fuller context of Romans chapter 2, and we don't have time, but I highly encourage you to, the kindness is that he has not already poured out his judgment and wrath against our sin, idolatry, and adultery. Right? We, We have said, we are Gomer. We are unfaithful. We have walked away. We have turned our heart and our affection to other places. And like Hosea had every right to divorce Gomer because of her unfaithfulness, God could have countless times chosen to walk away from us and to turn us over to the full consequences and judgment of our sin. He could have, but he hasn't. Not yet. Why? Because he still loves us and he longs to see us return to him. And so when I say Jesus is the true and better Hosea, I couldn't mean it anymore. Like Hosea, Jesus is right now seeking us out to bring us home with him. And maybe you're feeling that right now. Maybe you've never seen your relationship with him in this way. You thought you were a good person. You're taking time out of your week to watch this message that you're checking the right boxes. And when you die, you're going to be good enough to get your ticket into heaven's gates. But that's not it. You're the one who's been unfaithful. You're the one who's cheated on him. You're the one who's walked away. And he has every right to leave you there. But he doesn't. He comes looking and ready to redeem by his blood. And maybe you're feeling that. See, it's 
it's that love that pursues us. That's why we feel that. But I think more than that, it's that love that changes us. Maybe this light bulb is going off in your head because you thought that you were changed because you followed a checklist. You watch church online. You go in person when you can. You don't lie. You don't cheat. You work hard. You read your Bible. You pray. And you think by keeping this checklist that that's going to keep that relationship with you and God. It's going to make him overlook all that other unfaithfulness. But listen, it's not the keeping of any checklist that changes you. It is when you encounter the redeeming love of Jesus that you're redeemed and it changes you from the inside out it's seeing that love that redirects our hearts and affections to their proper place see the one thing I want you to get from Hosea today is that his love is redeeming when you see it when you experience it it changes you. Now, I want to be clear. His love doesn't mean you are redeemed. You can continue to be unfaithful and enslaved in your sin, but his love is redeeming in that if you turn to him, he will forgive and restore. Matter of fact, Hosea ends on that up note. It ends on that note of promise. Look at the first four verses of Hosea 14. It says, Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you and praise you from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion in you. And he says... That if they do, I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will have been turned from him. So Hosea ends on that note. If, If Israel will indeed repent and turn back to the Lord, he will forgive them and he will heal them. If they cry out, forgive me, he will answer. And if we cry out to him now, he will answer and save. And so maybe where you are, no matter what screen you're watching on, no matter what, who's, who's around, maybe you need to cry out right now. Maybe you need to cry out to the Lord, forgive me. I've been unfaithful. I'm a gomer. And I need you to save me. And if you do that, his love will redeem every single time. If you'd like to talk to somebody about that, about how you can make sure that you've entered into that relationship, we have people waiting online right now to talk to you. Uh, Drop it in the comments, go in the chat. If you're watching this after it's live, just come back and message us. We want to talk with you, but it's as simple as where you are right now, just crying out, Lord, forgive me. It's that simple. So let me pray for you, and we'd love to hear from you. And hope you come back next week as we jump into the second part of the series. Let me pray. God, thank you for the time this morning to spend with these people. And God, I pray that you would stir their hearts to see your redeeming love. And those who have tried to be good enough and tried their best to stay faithful would realize that in their best attempt, they still haven't. 
that like Gomer, they have fallen, like Gomer, they have turned away, and that it is only your love that can bring them the redemption they need. So God, I pray today that many would cry out to you, Lord, forgive me. Lord, save me. Lord, wash me clean from my unfaithfulness. That as they do, they would find new life in Christ. God, help us as a church to come alongside, to strengthen and encourage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.